This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey guys, welcome back to Pop Culture Confidential, and thank you for joining me for this very interesting conversation with actor Arliss Howard. What can I say? His career reads like something out of a cinema top 10 list. Arliss Howard has starred in Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket, Oliver Stone's Natural Born Killers, in Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park, The Lost World, and Amistad. He played opposite Brad Pitt in Moneyball and starred on TV's True Blood, Manhunt, and much more. And now, Howard does a genius scene-stealing performance as the MGM boss Louis B. Mayer in David Fincher's Mank, already being hailed by critics as a grand contribution to cinema. It's not often I get to speak to someone who can give me such an inside view like Arliss Howard. His new movie, Mank, is of course about the making of Citizen Kane and director Orson Welles, who was known as the boy wonder only 25 when he made the movie. This got us talking about filmmaking and directors, and it was like having a front row seat to what it's like to work with some of cinema's most famous directors. Arliss Howard describes Fincher as the smartest guy in the room who can take any role in the process. He talks about Steven Spielberg's sentimental focus and Oliver Stone's existential statements with his work. And when I asked him about all those many, many takes that Fincher insists on doing, Howard's answer was simply, look, I've worked with Kubrick. Most notably, there's a quality that he says that binds these directors together. And that's a burning curiosity about humans and human nature and a tremendous focus. And now, having talked to Arliss Howard, it's quite clear to me that these are traits that he also possesses. Mank is a story written in the 90s by David Fincher's late father, Jack. It stars Gary Oldman in a bravura performance as screenwriter Herman Mankiewicz called Mank. He's on a furious deadline writing the script for Citizen Kane. We flash back to details of Mank's relationships and stories that become the backbone of Citizen Kane. For example, with publisher William Randolph Hearst, played by Charles Dance. Hearst's mistress, Marion Davis, played by Amanda Seyfried. And film executive Louis B. Mayer, played by my guest Arliss Howard. There's also a very timely political storyline about Hearst's political leanings, fake news, and attempts to swing elections. Mank, it's Orson Welles. Of course it is. I think it's time we talked. Ready and willing to hunt a great white whale? Just call me Ahab. Tell the story you know. I hear you're hunting dangerous game. This is different. This is about something. I've put up with your suicidal drinking, your compulsive gambling, your silly platonic affairs. I gave you a second chance. How wealth and influence can crush a man. Are you hoping I might absolve you of such a personal betrayal? You made yourself court jester. Nobody but nobody makes a monkey out of William Randolph Hearst. You pick a fight with Willie. You are finished. Mank. Mr. Mankiewicz. So, you'll see that my conversation with Arliss Howard took many paths, from Mank to his process, 
and to stories about the directors he's worked with. And a tip for you, find someone who will talk about you like Arliss Howard talks about his wife, Deborah Winger. Here you go. Here's my conversation with Arliss Howard. Mr. Howard, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. So I'm speaking to you from New Zealand. Are you there filming? It, technically, um, my wife's working. And uh, when I came down with her, because I was here already, they asked if I would pop in for a bit. So I'm going to do a, uh, two or three days. And we, we, we came down here and we were in quarantine for two weeks in a little hotel room. And I think I'm still trying to adjust to being out of this, out of the hotel room. I live in the country. I'm not used to not being out and having the sky over my head. So, but I'm really here in support and um, also curiosity. You're not hobbits or anything, both of you. No, 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 it's not like that, no. What no. is the project, The Secret, or? Um, not really, it's a, a limited series that uh, Joe Gordon-Levitt is doing, that he wrote and he's directing. And uh, he's, he's really quite a talented guy. I didn't know he was directing as well. Yeah. I have to thank you for so many incredible performances through the years from um, Natural Born Killers, Full Metal Jacket, Ruby, oh, Manhunt, you name it. And now with Mank, where you play Louis B. Mayer. Now, David Fincher has said, and I quote, that he wanted to embrace an older style of acting. Can you describe what that is and how you did that? I think there was a certain pace, cadence, speed, velocity, and you know, David is very, very technical in how he renders shots. He, he has a sensibility that essentially is I'm responsible for everything in the frame and it includes the actor. So I, I wouldn't, I would only say that it, it was, it, it was a certain kind of precision that you see often in some of the old Funnily enough, to me, that some of the comedies, mm -hmm. uh, Howard Hawks, you know, his Girl Friday, where you have this incredible pace and speed and precision in the in the acting, yeah, and it, and it's written a certain way, and and the script was very very precise, and very uh, rhythmic and witty and layered, and when people were insulting each other, they were doing it very deftly, and when they were taking the piss out of somebody, they often, the person opposite them didn't know they were having the piss taken out of them. And it's that kind of writing. And there's also a, an incredibly complex political structure to the film that was, aside from the fact that David's father wrote it, which was really the selling point for me, I was fascinated by that, and that David had had it for a while. There was a political element to the film that is scary. So timely. Yeah. For 30 years almost, he was the most powerful motion picture executive in Hollywood. I remember reading that Louis B. May was a crier, that he tended to be very emotional. I remember that was quite fascinating. Yeah, I think what makes people interesting to me is what, it, what, they, what they want, how they go about getting what they want. And of course, it's in varying or lesser degrees, depending on the person, of course, what, how that, how far 
forward that is in in their <laughs> in their reptilian part of their brain. But you know, Mayer was a striver, and and he came from you know really really basically immigrant poor into Halifax and then down into Massachusetts, and they were in the junk business. And he was a salesman, and he had this kind of rhapsodic relationship to his idea of America. You know, it's talked about how he changed his birthday to the 4th of July because he was so enraptured with the opportunity of America. And so I think anybody who, just those facts alone would sort of lead you to believe that he was an emotional guy, you know, people that connect to things that way on an emotional level. And also had a, a really volcanic temper. And so the other side of that would be, he could be, you know, he could dissolve into tears. Yeah, and I mean, he was terrible to women. And um, there's an interesting line in, in the movie. I'm trying to remember it from my head. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. Fantastic. Right? I, I remember when I first read it, I remember where I was sitting. Where was that? I was in Pittsburgh. and I was in a loft in Pittsburgh. Sun's coming through. I had talked to David a little while before. And I got this document, you know, and I was reading it and I was struck a few pages in with, oh, this is really smart. You know, screenplays are interesting. They're not meant to be read. They're meant to be shot. You don't often, you're not often taken by the, the wit, the intelligence for its own sake, setting aside the fact that it's going to be rendered. And oftentimes screenplays are written in very short scenes. These were long, long, long scenes. You know, and there's, in fact, uh, David does something in the middle that I think is just extraordinary. There's this long scene of Mayer's birthday party that's followed immediately by a really long scene of, of Mank and Marion walking through the gardens at Hearst Castle. Really long scene. I mean, they stop three or four times. There's some animals uh, and they're talking, talking, talking. And you don't see that often where you have these long conversations and these long, and the scene at the birthday party is extraordinary for how much political, historical, and, and also the jockeying for position in the Hearst world. You know, you can feel this kind of striving, like who's on the periphery and who's close to him and who's over in this group. And, and you know, Charlie Chaplin's at the piano. I mean, he's essentially like <laughs> a band leader. The entertainment. Then. It's very interesting, um, but I just remember just when I got to that scene where, where Mayer is effectively describing the movie business, I thought that's as good a definition of, of business. If you can make something that nobody owns anything and they pay for it and they'll come back and buy it again, I mean, to a businessman, that's like, you know, and then it, in a way it explains Facebook. You think you have access or something. You think you're getting a, some sort of emotional kick, and maybe you are, but you're not only at the mercy of the, of the platform, but you're, you're slowly having everything you own <laughs> sucked up and distributed God knows where, you know. Amanks, of course, about Orson Welles and, and credits. And, and if you sort of look at Orson Welles, Fincher, you look at Kubrick and Spielberg, is there something you see that is the same about how they work or very different? 
it's an interesting tension between wide open curiosity and absolute ruthless focus on a on an imagined goal and they're in and they're in conflict because I, I really want to try to say this where it makes sense because it's as I say I, I'm describing something that's almost indescribable but the one quality I think in my own personal experience and then looking at someone like Wells, the film, which is the only way I know Wells and, and his acting, you know, I never met him, I don't. And a guy like Wells becomes a prisoner of his own design really early because of his own reaction to the expectations he either feels or that he puts on himself. And, but what, what kept Wells vital to me, and I mean, Touch of Evil, I love that movie, The Magnificent Anderson, all those, you know, I just love them. Um, but what made him was this, you can just feel this rampant curiosity about humans. You just feel it. You, you feel that he's really curious about Agnes Moorhead as, a, as an artist. Like, what is this creature? What is she apt to do? They're just alive. And, uh, and at the same time, there's a real formal desire to contain it and own it and that they're fighting a lot, you know? without even necessarily consciously fighting it. Stanley, for example, and I've said this, you know, he, he said one time, the only job I can't do, because he could read the light in your face, indoors and out, within a point on a light meter with his eye. Wow. Because he had trained as a photographer and he was just that way. I mean, he, he'd leave for tea, come back, he'd say that we've lost some height on the, on the sticks and they'd go, no, Gov, we locked it off. And he'd go, no, we're a quarter inch low. And They'd measure and he'd be a quarter inch low and he'd say it's hydraulics after all you're not going to keep hydraulics up for as much time as it takes for tea and david is similar in this way and it and it is about control it's about a responsibility to the, what they're seeing and how they're seeing it as it's happening and what it leads to the next thing and the reference in stanley's case certainly because he actually said it to me you know the job is to remember when you're working, whether it's you or whether it's me, on the day when we come to shoot this part of the film, to remember what it was about it that excited us when we first read it or wrote it, because the whole process is built to strip that away from you. Time, money, uh, somebody's not prepared, bad equipment. Yeah, it feels like the passion absolutely can encompass them during the, the making of, of art. Yeah, and I think about it as interest. You know, when you think about passion, what is it really? You know, this thirsting, you know, voracious, headlong, without control thing. And this is exactly the opposite of how it manifests with guys like this, is it's interest, it's focus. They don't miss anything. They're completely locked in. You know, like you look at Bertolucci, you look at that work, and, and the thing that separates Bertolucci out for me from a lot of really great filmmakers is you feel that he's a poet. I knew he was a poet before I knew he was a poet. There's something about that sensibility, I can't describe it, but it, it is focus. You're describing Fincher and Kubrick. It feels like Spielberg has the passion, but somehow I feel like he may be different in how he works. I, I, th I think Stephen, what, what Stephen has is that's, that's really different. And I, I can't think of a filmmaker that comes to mind that has this, is he's sentimental. He's got a real soft spot, you know, like. That's so interesting. 
felt like you put the nail on the head. That's not what you feel about Fincher and his movies. Go ahead. I'm sorry. It just was a real aha moment no, no, for me. No, no, and I, I don't think if you if you if you talk to anybody about David, that would not be a, a, a word that would even come on the horizon of a thought about David. And yet, I've seen him moved. But Stephen has like sentiment is like an echo of movement. You know, sentiment is a is a memory of being moved. And I don't mean that in a deprecating way whatsoever. What it really has to do with is Stephen is really in touch with the little kid that got the Super 8 camera and was directing his sisters and, and the world opened up for him. Whatever world was there before, once he got that camera, the first time I sat with Stephen, uh, I, was, I was down in Amblin and I'm sitting there and there's a light apparently behind me because he's sitting there going like this. And, and I went, oh my God, he's framing me. And sure enough, he said, yeah, I'm trying to get the light. I'm trying to get you in the relationship with the light. I mean, and Kate, his wife told me that when he was filming her birth, she felt like, oh, we're staging this, you know, like not because he wasn't in there and participating or anything, but because of how he sees, he sees through and there's a sentiment attached to that because it's, it's always connected back to the first time he looked through the camera. I believe this, that when I see him put his eye on the eyepiece, there's something inside him that's going, oh God, I love this so much because I always have, you know? And that's what I mean. It's, and, and to my way of thinking, there are moments in each of his films, pretty much, where that bubbles up. You'll see a moment, even in something as horrific as Schindler, which is just, breathtaking. And then there's this moment in the film where Schindler breaks down and says, I could have saved so many more. And you go, well, that's what an interesting note. I mean, it, I, I, I'm only describing my reaction to it. What people forget about E.T., for example, is this incredible sorrow in this family at the top of that movie. I mean, yeah, it's a divorce story. beautiful and calibrated how sad this family is about the recent departure of the father, how wounded the mother is. And, and, and it opens up this relationship that you, you're completely defenseless for this little creature in a way that I would normally go, come on. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing, but, but again, it can be folded back into a quality that I've found in all these really amazing artists is so if Stevens is, that he's in touch with that seven-year-old first looking through a camera, what would you say David's is? I think, I think what David is dealing with is a, a long history of being the smartest guy in the room. Like Orson. Yeah, without the emotional gluttony maybe or whatever quality you might say about somebody who dissipates physically over the years, what that represents, you know, the 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 appetite the unchecked so but so david has the well here's an interesting you know for me you know he said one time and and he can be you know incredibly self-deprecating but that's usually the province of really smart guys who are the smartest guy in the room who sort of use it as a pressure release valve you know um just to kind of like take a break uh, but also because he's, you know, he's very observant and curious and whatever. But he said, you know, my first job was I, w I was the model maker at the company that then became ILM. 
he was designing the and building the in the first Star Wars those big walking spaceships. Yeah, those big kind of whatever you want to call them, those giant like the Starfleet came in and ran cables around them and tripped them up. And I guess David's job was to do the stop action, you know. And they gave it to him because they said he said give it to the kid. He 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 won't quit. He'll he'll just sit there, you know, and work like that. I don't know how old he was at the time, but that was, you know, that was, I don't know if it was his first movie job or if he made movies. I think he, as I recall him talking to me, he used to direct plays when he was in high school, but I could easily see how that work would, wouldn't capture his, his attention. There's a kind of, I don't know what you talk about working in the theater. It's like, bring your lunch and it's more like blue collar work, you know, like labor. <laughs> yeah. His passion is unstoppable. He'll work all day. Yeah. And, and he will. And, yeah, but I think it's it's also this idea of being the smartest guy in the room. And, you know, Charlie tells a really great story. He was on David's first big film. He did the Alien movie, you know, and he goes, there's this young guy and we're all coming on. Sorry, you're speaking of the act. Charles Dance. Charles Dance, yes. He, he, he said, you know, the first day of work on this, they're at Pinewood, they're on three stages. They've got this gigantic spaceship built. They've got this huge labyrinth whatever and it's got you know this like you do on those big movies i mean it's just like an army you know and they're waiting you know for their deployment and he comes in and he says here's what we're going to do and it was something that was totally different and of course he got all these older he's young and he's got you know sigourney's the the franchise there and whatever and and they're all kind of looking at him and and he said it wasn't within five minutes that everybody knew that he was he could do anybody's job better than them yeah. whatever about the costume whatever about this whatever about this no we're going to do this and this is how it's going to work and this is what we're doing and 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 he said it was it was kind of breathtaking and and i i the minute he told me the story i said sure i get that yeah i think probably from the time he was eight years old he was sitting there going okay when's it going to start you know and then when he got to be nine, he went, no, I'm just going to make it start. <laughs> and, and Oliver Stone feels like his passion comes from like his passion to tell, you know, the story of, of America, sort of his political. And Oliver, yeah, there's another interest. I've completely forgotten. Oliver is, is a real interesting cat, man. Yeah, he's really an interesting cat. Or he was when I knew him. I don't know what's going on now, but he... There is a there's a real struggle in there in there you know because of where he came from you know he came from Wall Street grew up and then he it's almost like an existential statement I'm gonna go off to Vietnam and shoot guns or whatever it was um, so there's this real interesting you know he's very literate very interested in a wide variety of things this is always the thing that always will get me about a person is the horizon of their interests. You know, like when you, you, and you can feel it really quick with people if they've traveled, if they're interested in all kinds of things, if they've read books and can wrestle cows, you know, stuff like that. It's, it's always. You were mentioning earlier about David Fincher in an, a recent article. I love how he's kind of self deprecating about the fact that he does many takes, that that's his style and everyone knows it and he knows it. I was wondering a little bit about that process. Um, how, what does it look like to film? What was your longest take with him? Um, 
I had a lot of trouble in general with the text, uh, committing it to memory. And I was very um, baffled by this because really good writing is generally easy to memory to memorize. And I came up in the theater where you're, you know, particularly in rep where you're memorizing volumes of text. So, and I also have no indication that I'm, you know, losing my mind, but it, it began to metastasize, you know, the more that it was an issue. And so for me to have any comment about David and the multitude of takes that he used, I, I would have to, first of all, start with my own responsibility, you know, for, for that particular issue that I'm still not sure exactly. I would say that, you know, my experience working with David is everybody who's working is really fucking good. He's got operators that will follow a gnat and keep it in focus. I mean, he's got sound guys and, and his artisans, costume, design, and Eric, this young shooter, is just, yeah. oh, he's just, he, I can't even say enough about that guy. So regarding takes, I've worked with Kubrick. So the notion of a lot of takes was, it's irrelevant to me. Mm -hmm. I work with Spielberg, who doesn't do a lot of takes. And Steven's shots are generally shorter. He has a syncopated quality to his filmmaking. And then every now and then he'll break out some magnificent dolly shot, you know, but... I had done lots and lots of takes over the years. With David, I think the first day I worked, Gary said, oh, mate, this would be interesting, you know, like, because he had had, you know, a few days already. And we were doing one of the walk and talks, and I had a new pair of shoes that weren't really broken in. And I was wearing all period undergarments, you know, underwear, socks, Padded this wonderful belly they built for me. It was fantastic. I wanted to take it home. It was so much fun. And, uh, you know, we were walking 70 yards or something, and it's very precise kind of walking to stay the exact precise distance from the camera. But I, you know, worked with hunting dogs before, and, and the way you work them is very precise with things that you throw out for them. So I understood, you know, they're running a little trailer thing. Uh, in front of the camera that I was meant to walk, you know, be stepping very close to him. The technical stuff wasn't bothering me at all. My feet were just shredded. By about the eighth or ninth take, I was, my feet were bleeding. Because of the shoes. The shoes. Mm -hmm. And we're walking a long way and they're thin socks. And it, interestingly enough, was the one day that I didn't have very much trouble with the, the script because I was, <laughs> I was, you were in I was pain. Just, trying to keep my feet sort of in, in some relative contact to the soles of my shoes. And at the end of the day, when I took my shoes off, it was like, you know, kind of horrifying. I thought, I wonder what this is going to be like, you know. I, I appreciate anybody who justifiably, because he's very open about the nature of the shot. He's really democratic about sharing the shot, you know, with all the people that are around. He's not secretive or any of that kind of stuff he, he's very but and and he will tell you you know where the shot is 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 landing in the film and the construct of film which has always been a really integral part of how i like to work i like to know what the in the out where's the cut so i didn't have a, a whole lot of problem with with the number of takes i had a problem 
as I say, staying connected with the character that I'm coming to understand more and more wasn't really paying a lot of attention to anybody else around him. And I think that may have seeped in a little bit. I'm not sure. I, I don't like to think of myself as being inhabited by a character, but. So you mean that his sort of ego was, he was so egocentrical that. When you say that I have a certain picture in my mind and what I think about with Mayer is I wouldn't use the word narcissist or egocentric. I would think of Mayer the way I would think of any uh, carnivorous mammal. You know, he, his brain is, is tuned into a certain frequency. The short version would be he's a killer. You know, he has a place he's going and anybody who gets in the way has to be dealt with as efficiently and quickly as possible to get to where he wants to go. We're only presuming that we know certain things about a human being that, that I will tell you an anecdote about Mayer if you want to hear it. Yes, go. I have a friend whose father, John Considine, was a producer at MGM and he was one of about seven or eight guys who had lifetime contracts there to produce movies. He produced Young Edison with Spencer Tracy and a bunch of other movies. Oh, wow. So my friend John grew up in Beverly Hills and Harpo Marx was in his bomb shelter in 1941. You know, he has all these anecdotes about Hollywood you know, Gene Kelly's furniture was nailed to the floor. He, he was friends with Gene Kelly, one of Gene Kelly's kids, and they went over there and the, the furniture in his house was all nailed to the floor because he liked to work on the furniture when he was trying out dances. Dancing? <laughs> that kind of thing. So anyway, John's father was a drinker and apparently one night he had given Mayer a, a real, real tape recorder as a gift that Mayer was very fond of apparently. And one night he called Mayor up. Mayor decided not to make some movie that he was supposed to make. And, and he called him up and he, and he drunkenly just unleashed this anti-Semitic invective. And, you know, he's an Irishman and he was going on and on about what a blah, 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 cocksucker, blah, 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 you know, you know, I'll never wet, blah, blah, blah. And he had a lifetime deal there, right? And the next day he woke up and had some vague idea that he might have made a phone call that he might want to, you know, account for and he called mayor back he said listen i was really drunk last night i'm not sure what i said and mayor said to him well i can play you exactly what you said and he had recorded him with the gift of the tape recorder and he played it back for him and then he fired him yeah that feels like a mayor thing to do yeah but i think it's not in the, in a certain way it's just well i can't have that on my lot i can't have somebody who says that who is more probably that he was he didn't like drunks Tell me a little bit about working with Gary Oldman in this picture. How was it? What was his preparation like? You know, Gary, like a lot of really, really fine, fine artists, whatever work he does, he does it on his own. That the perform, particularly as it relates to really good film actors, and, and Gary is also a marvelous stage actor, but whatever work Gary did, was done by the time he got there and the 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 actual shooting was just the end of the gesture you know it was the end of the process is this is the part of the process where we present the work this is the part of the process where we adjust the work this is the part of the process where we calibrate it and work out the relationship to the lens and the other and it is no more or less important in the process than in any other preparation. And what I mean by that is the first table read, we got to the scene where, he's get, where he, he tells the drunken story of Cain at the banquet. 
and they were messing around with it. And Gary was kind of sitting there and he said, you know, I, I was looking at it last night at Jack's, at the original script that I had. And I, I, I well, let me just, let me just give it to you. And he opened up and I thought like, I knew like the minute he started, I said, he's going to open this up. I mean, he's just going to go ahead and he's going to show the card trick to the freight train, you know? And sure enough, I mean, it was full, like one of those lovely moments. They talk about how Olivia used to show up and do this, oh, darling, I don't know. I'm so, I don't know what I'm going to do. And then he would, they'd start the read and, and like he's playing Othello and he's got the whole script memorized. And the next thing he's up and he's like roaring around the room and he's just laid everybody else out and they're all running home now. They've got to learn the whole play they did wow. now. You know, he liked to wrong foot people that way. Well, that wasn't what Gary was doing. I think what Gary was doing is he was just basically saying, you've hired me because I'm who I am and you've given me this to do because of that. And so if any of what we're doing now in terms of taking the thing apart has to do with the idea that I need some different words or a different construct of the words other than what I first read when I fell in love with it. Let me dispel you of that notion in the way that I'll do it, which is I'm not going to talk to you about it. I'm not going to debate. I'm just going to do the scene. And it was just this lovely, modulated, incisive, precise, drunken tale telling with all its little. And I remember sitting there and going, gosh, this is so, this is so good <laughs> that he's that good. It's just going to be great. It's going to be great that he's that good, you know? And it was, it's lovely. It's just yeah. lovely. And, and so, as I say, and also he's a, he's hilarious and he's got that great British tale telling, take the piss out of myself. Let me tell you a story about when I was with blah, 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 down in the, the regional at the blah, blah, and so-and-so. And Charlie dances the same way. He's incredibly precise, full of, blood actors with this ability to like deliver it and then sit back in a chair when it's time to do that and just tell stories and it's a lovely quality so the opposite of method acting wasn't yeah. that olivier that you, you mentioned olivier wasn't he that who said you know why don't you guys just try acting yeah and i think that's that's interesting coming from olivier because he was not near the film actor that some of those actors he had a comment about you know, there's always been this thing about the method, the method, the method. And I think it's very misunderstood, particularly as it relates to uh, American, the difference between American and British acting. The method, as it's commonly understood, is very different than what Stanislavski was doing, what Sandy Meisner was doing, what even Strasberg was doing. They didn't mean for you to like pull out your incisors. Yeah, I had a super interesting conversation with Brian Cox about that, who yeah, I, I think what it, what it finally comes down to, I don't care whether you're living inside of it or you're living outside of it and giving the illusion that you're living inside of it. I don't care if you're walking around and you only want to be called by your character's name. And that is not just Americans that have that particular thing, or you don't want to be looked at by other people or whatever it is that you got going on. None of it matters unless, you know, you're abusing somebody with a stick or you know, you're know you taking up too much room so nobody can else do the work. The, the final thing always is the result. Right. 
and everybody's way of doing things is very, very different. I don't have a... You're okay with that. Look, I'm, I've been guilty in my own, particularly when I was younger. I thought you had to be like angry and yell and scream because I came up with a lot of guys that did that, you know, and I, I tried to do it a little bit and I just found I was mortified. I, I mortified myself, you know, because I, I didn't know what I mean to say by by these guys is that there's an elegance to their comportment and a certain generosity. Um, Gary, certainly, Charlie, uh, Fer Ferdinand, the whole British cohort, uh, Tuppence, lovely, lovely, and funny, all f very, very funny, and that really counts for a lot. But what about, you mentioned before, what about working with someone like Kubrick? When you did Full Metal Jacket, I understand that you went full-on realistic boot camp training. Um, is that something you, you know, in hindsight, see that was very useful to that difficult role? Well, our, our training on that movie was a bit different than, say, some of the other guys. Like, you get a Dale Dye kind of guy who'll take you out there, you know, whether it was for Oliver's film or, or I don't know what they did on Private Ryan. I guess they had one there, too. A lot of the war movies like to do that. There's a romance about war movies and military stuff that sort of bleeds over, particularly because you're getting a lot of technical guys to come in who actually have the experience of it. Right. In our particular case, the guy that was designed to sort of teach us how to be soldiers was a drill sergeant who ended up taking over the part of the drill sergeant in the film, Lee Ermey. He wasn't originally supposed to do that. He wasn't supposed to play that part. But Stanley just, in his improvs and the way he worked with us, uh, Stanley just got, I've never seen, in the entire time I knew Stanley, I never saw him like a little kid watching somebody the way he would watch Lee. Because, you know, Lee, <laughs> it's just like, I remember one day Lee was going off and he, you know, he would go on these riffs because he had been a drill sergeant at Paris Island, you know? So he would go on these riffs of, of just vile name calling, you know, the whole, and at one point he said, which one of you twinkle toed cocksuckers, you know, and, I heard this little chuckle, you know, and so I, I the, you know, the, the, we came off the shot and walked over to the monitor and Stanley was sitting there and he was shaking, he was laughing and, and he kept saying, twinkle-toed cocksucker. He just loved that. He loved it. Like he couldn't get it out of his mouth for like the whole day. He just thought that was the most amazing thing he, he had heard. And you, John Wayne, is this me? Who said that? Who the fuck said that? Who's the slimy little communist shit twinkle-toed cocksucker down here who just signed his own death warrant? Nobody, huh? The very fucking godmother said it. I'm fucking standing. I will PT you all until you fucking die. I'll PT you until your asshole for sucking buttermilk. Was it you, you scroungy little fuck, huh? Sir, no, sir. You little piece of shit, you look like a fucking worm. I bet it was you. Sir, no, sir. Sir, I said it, sir. Our, our experience really was about utility. It was, he didn't care whether we, there was an advantage really to coming into basic training not knowing anything because that's the first we shot in sequence, the basic stuff. But there was later on, of course, we had to do the Vietnam stuff. And, and a lot of it is just mechanical stuff. How fast can you take apart a weapon and put it back together? How can you, how do you give the illusion that you've been humping your gear 
for miles and miles and miles and miles. And this, of course, was urban warfare. This was not jungle warfare. My, all our stuff was technical stuff. Like I, I could take apart a, weapon, a rifle and put it back together blindfolded, but that was because I needed to be able to handle that stuff in the course of the shot. I wasn't trying to become a soldier. You know, I don't even know what that means when people say that. Mm-hmm. You hear guys go, or their press agent or somebody will say, you know, that boxing movie, I mean, he, if he really tried, he could be a contender. I mean, he could be like a ranked fighter. And I'm going, no, because a club fighter, a moderately trained club fighter, if he opened up on you and hit you one time in the kidney, you wouldn't come to work for two months. Mm -hmm. I mean, those guys are taught to throw punches that are meant to make people stop fighting. Mm -hmm. And there's no way in hell, I don't care who you are, if you're the money in the movie that they're going to let a guy hit you. <laughs> so it's just not going to happen. Right. The, the thrill of it is like you watch Will Smith, for example, uh, who I, I just, I'm a big fan of his, but you watch him in Ali. It isn't just the fact that he looks like he, he's, and he's throwing and slipping punches and being hit. It's the way he moves like Ali moved, especially moving backwards. It's uncanny. Yeah. This is where you get, the breathtaking part of acting where if that's preparation or inspiration or just genius or whatever it is, it doesn't matter because that you can't fake, you know, that relationship to the body is either there or it's not. I mean, how many baseball movies have you seen where you got a guy who can't throw a baseball and it's just like, Oh my God. Mank going back to that. It, it It's also a movie about what Hollywood gives and and how Hollywood so devastatingly takes away um, from alcoholism to, you know, how with this incredibly long career you've had with all these people you've worked with, how have you managed to stay so sane and, and, and worked so long in Hollywood? First of all, probably because I never for an instant thought that I had been forced to do it. I never for an instant lost sight of the fact that I volunteered. You know, nobody ever, you know, despite the history of forced labor with children and animals, nobody ever made anybody go into it. It's a business, you know, and, it, and the fact that the business has to do with what, what did Jack Warner say? The, the assets go home at night, but it's, it, it's a business and it's an interesting kind of business because it's dealing in what is thought of as art the moving image and all the artisans that come together to do that. And as far as actors go, there's, for the most part, the shelf life of what might interest an actor or what is available to an actor, particularly with women, historically. It's very, very rare that you get roles written that are worth the incredible talents of of great actresses let alone, you know, that the they're going to make them. So the, there, there can be a, a certain, um, I don't know, a lack of perspective about why, how you got where you got, because it's also a, a very gypsy kind of life. And it attracts people who are often had grown up either in the military or in my particular case, my dad was a preacher, you know, where there's a certain storytelling element and a reorienting of narrative all the time. You know, like now I'm in this place and I've got to present myself. I've run into so many people, actors who, who grew up in the military, who, who, who were rarely 
you know, in a place more than two or three years. And that's very incredibly difficult as you're coming into your adolescence to keep, to avoid kind of creating a character, right? So the lifestyle itself is very familiar, like traveling. I got that. I, I knew how to travel. I knew how to do all that stuff. But the main thing for me was I, I've been really fortunate. I, I rarely have done something that was not interesting to me. And I was willing to take the consequences for that such as they were, which might mean not working for a long time. I was fortunate that I'm not a profligate spender. I'm married well. I have really smart people that I rely on for certain advice. And I'm, I'm interested in lots and lots and lots of things. Is it okay if I mention that your wife is Deborah Winger, whose movies have meant so incredibly much to me as well? Most certainly. She must have been a big influence in you guys on each other. I remember when I first, I was sitting at, at I, I think it was Grauman's Chinese, Terms of Endearment. I had seen her before and was well aware of her, but it was Terms of Endearment. And I'm sitting in the audience and Brooks, who was really smart about how he deployed her entry into the movie. He's got the prologue with Shirley MacLaine climbing into the thing and into the bed and pinching her and all that. And then the camera's on the back of her head in the shot, and you hear this voice, the score comes up, the voice off camera goes, Emma. And she turns around into, that, into the lens. Oh. And it's just, it can barely, you can feel the, the camera vibrate, right? There's not, and, and, and I felt this before I knew her, so I wanna think of myself as fairly objective. I have never seen any other actress or actor perhaps for that matter, that has that primal relationship to the lens. Setting aside any other questions, just, you know, and if you don't believe me, you should go down to New Orleans to the gallery there where Helmut Newton's prints are hanging up. I walked in there one day, I was working down there and I walked into the gallery and I hadn't seen her in a while because we've been missing each other. And I walk in there and there's this print of Helmut Newton, silver gelatin print, they wanted like six figures for it. And it's her with a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. And I mean, I'm standing there and this guy, the gallery owner comes up and he goes, I know. <laughs> yeah, there, There's a movie that doesn't get often seen or mentioned, but um, it's a dangerous woman. And she plays this really strange bespectacled character. And then there's a moment in the movie where she is sexual and it is so shocking i i can't recall i remember seeing i saw you know an early screening of it and she's kind of all strange and you know she she's got something going on with her and and then, then there's a moment where she's by herself and and she's sexual and it it is so mysterious and and strange and and everything's alchemical because it's like not just the character but it's the actress and your history with the actress and the the story that's going on, and then also my own relationship with the woman, I, I can remember standing up in a little screening room and just going, well, I'm fucked. I mean, <laughs> I'm eternally fucked. I, <laughs> I love I love how beautifully you talk of her both as, as a love and as art. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah she's well, Mr. Howard, I'm not sure if you can uh, wrestle cows, but you certainly have incredibly interesting perspective and, and curiosity and in performances that, that I've had 
enjoyed seeing and I can't wait for everyone else to see Mank too so I can start talking about it with other people. Thank you so much for taking your time. I know it's been difficult to schedule. Oh, it's a, no, and I, I, I imagined that I would go on a bit because I'm really excited. I was telling uh, CN in an email actually that I can't recall a time that I was more curious about the response to something I was involved in uh, other than my own film and my three boys going off into the world. I was curious about how the world was gonna receive them in this. And, and it's funny about this, for some reason, there's something about this particular film. I'm really curious what the takeaway is gonna be. You know, it, it's a very strange time, strange world to release it into. It really wants to be seen high, wide and handsome. And I'm afraid that the opportunities for that are extremely rare. However, in New Zealand here, I'm gonna to get to see it on big, with a bunch of other people cheek by jowl because they mm. got it under control down here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm not worried. Yeah, it's, um, it's magisterial to look at, I will say that. And, and I, I, I'm, just, I'm really very, very curious to see how people respond to it. It's an interesting piece of work. Well, thank you so much and stay safe. Oh, thanks for having me. It was great, great to, to kind of uh, to talk. <laughs> yeah, wasn't it? Thank you so much. Thank you so much to Arliss Howard. Mank premieres theatrically in different territories from November 13th and on, and will finally premiere on Netflix on December 4th. Please subscribe to Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts and get in touch with me on Twitter at Christina Biru. I'd love to hear from you. And if you like the show, please take a minute to rate and review it. It really helps others who enjoy this kind of content to find it. Thank you so much and see you next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.